Section 11 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. William Cooper, Part 2. Cooper was not to be allowed to write, except occasionally, on magpies and cats. Mrs. Unwin, who took a serious view of the poet's art, gave him as a subject the progress of error, and is thus mainly responsible for the now little-read volume of moral satires, with which he began his career as a poet at the age of fifty in 1782. It is not a book that can be read with unmixed or even with much delight. It seldom rises above a good man's rhetoric. Cooper, instead of writing about himself and his pets and his cucumber frames, wrote of the wicked world from which he had retired, and the vices of which he could not attack with that particularity that makes satire interesting. The satires are not exactly dull, but they are lacking in force, either of wit or of passion. They are hardly more than an expression of sentiment and opinion. The sentiments are usually sound, for Cooper was an honest lover of liberty and goodness, but even the cause of liberty is not likely to gain much from such a couplet as, "'Man made for kings!' Those optics are but dim that tell you so. Say, rather, they for him. Nor will the manners of the clergy benefit much as the result of such an attack on the pleasant Sunday afternoon kind of pastor, as is contained in the lines, If apostolic gravity be free to play the fool on Sundays, why not we? If he the tinkling harpsichord regards as inoffensive, what offence in cards? These, it must in fairness be said, are not examples of the best in the moral satires, but the latter is worth quoting as evidence of the way in which Cooper tried to use verse as the pulpit of a rather narrow creed. The satires are hardly more than denominational in their interest. They belong to the religious fashion of their time, and are interesting to us now only as the old clothes of eighteenth-century evangelicalism. The subject matter is secular as well as religious, but the atmosphere almost always remains evangelical. The Rev. John Newton wrote a preface for the volume, suggesting this, and claiming that the author aims to communicate his own perceptions of the truth, beauty, and influence of the religion of the Bible. The publisher became so alarmed at this advertisement of the piety of the book that he succeeded in suppressing it in the first edition. Cooper himself had enough worldly wisdom to wish to conceal his pious intentions from the first glance of the reader, and for this reason opened the book not with the progress of error, but with the more attractively named Table Talk. My sole drift is to be useful, he told a relation, however. 
my readers will hardly have begun to laugh before they will be called upon to correct that levity and peruse me with a more serious air he informed newton at the same time thinking myself in a measure obliged to tickle if i meant to please i therefore affected a jocularity i did not feel he also told newton i am merry that i may decoy people into my company on the other hand cooper did not write john gilpin which is certainly his masterpiece in the mood of a man using wit as a decoy he wrote it because it irresistibly demanded to be written i wonder he once wrote to newton that a sportive thought should ever knock at the door of my intellects and still more that it should gain admittance it is as if harlequin should intrude himself into the gloomy chamber where a corpse is deposited in state harlequin luckily for us took hold of his pen in john gilpin and in many of the letters in the moral satires harlequin is dressed in a sober suit and sent to a theological seminary one cannot but feel that there is something incongruous in the boast of a wit and a poet that he had found occasion towards the close of my last poem called retirement to take some notice of the modern passion for seaside entertainments and to direct the means by which they might be made useful as well as agreeable this might serve well enough as a theme for a letter to the editor of the baptist eye-opener one cannot imagine however its causing a flutter in the breast of even the meekest of the nine muses cooper to say the truth had the genius not of a poet but of a letter-writer the interest of his verse is chiefly historical he was a poet of the transition to wordsworth and the revolutionists and was a mouthpiece of his time but he has left only a tiny quantity of memorable verse lamb has often been quoted in his favour i have he wrote to coleridge in seventeen ninety six been reading the task with fresh delight i am glad you love cooper i could forgive a man for not enjoying milton but i would not call that man my friend who should be offended with the divine chit-chat of cooper lamb it should be remembered was a youth of twenty-one when he wrote this and cooper's verse had still the attractions of early blossoms that herald the coming of spring there is little in the task to make it worth reading to-day except to the student of literary history like the only hymns and the moral satires it was a poem written to order lady austin the vivacious widow who had meanwhile joined the only group was anxious that cooper should show what he could do in blank verse he undertook to humour her if she would give him a subject oh she said you can never be in want of a subject you can write upon any write upon this sofa cooper in his more ambitious verse 
seems seldom to have ridden under the compulsion of the subject as the great poets do even the noble lines on the loss of the royal george were written as he confessed by desire of lady austin who wanted words to the march in scipio for this lady austin deserves the world's thanks as she does for cheering him up in his low spirits with the story of john gilpin he did not write john gilpin by request however he was so delighted on hearing the story that he lay awake half the night laughing at it and the next day he felt compelled to sit down and write it out as a ballad strange as it may seem he afterwards said of it the most ludicrous lines i ever wrote have been written in the saddest mood and but for that saddest mood perhaps had never been written at all the grinners at john gilpin he said in another letter little dream what the author sometimes suffers how i hated myself yesterday for having ever wrote it it was the publication of the task and john gilpin that made cooper famous it is not the task that keeps him famous today. there is it seems to me more of the divine fire in any half-dozen of his good letters than there is in the entire six books of the task one has only to read the argument at the top of the third book called the garden in order to see in what a dreary didactic spirit it is written here is the argument in full self-recollection and reproof address to domestic happiness some account of myself the vanity of many of the pursuits which are accounted wise justification of my censures divine illumination necessary to the most expert philosopher the question what is truth answered by other questions domestic happiness addressed again few lovers of the country my tame hair occupations of a retired gentleman in the garden pruning framing greenhouse sowing of flower seeds the country preferable to the town even in the winter reasons why it is deserted at that season ruinous effects of gaming and of expensive improvement book concludes with an apostrophe to the metropolis it is true that in the intervals of addresses to domestic happiness and apostrophes to the metropolis there is plenty of room here for virgilian verse if cooper had had the genius for it unfortunately when he writes about his garden he too often writes about it as prosaically as a contributor to a gardening paper his description of the making of a hot frame is merely a blank verse paraphrase of the commonest prose first he tells us the stable yields a stercoraceous heap impregnated with quick fermenting salts and potent to resist the freezing blast for ere the beech and elm have cast their leaf deciduous 
when now november dark checks vegetation in the torpid plant exposed to his cold breath the task begins warily therefore and with prudent heed he seeks a favoured spot that where he builds the agglomerated pile his frame may front the sun's meridian disk and at the back enjoy close shelter wall or reeds or hedge impervious to the wind having further prepared the ground the uplifted frame compact at every joint and overlaid with clear translucent glass he settles next upon the sloping mount whose sharp declivity shoots off secure from the dashed pane the deluge as it falls the writing of blank verse puts the poet to the severest test and cooper does not survive the test had the task been written in couplets he might have been forced to sharpen his wit by the necessity of rhyme as it is he is merely ponderous a snail of imagination labouring under a heavy shell of eloquence in the fragment called yardley oak he undoubtedly achieved something worthier of a distant disciple of milton but i do not think he was ever sufficiently preoccupied with poetry to be a good poet he had even ceased to read poetry by the time he began in earnest to write it i reckon it he wrote in 1781 among my principal advantages as a composer of verses that i have not read an english poet these thirteen years and but one these thirteen years so mild was his interest in his contemporaries that he had never heard collins's name till he read about him in johnson's lives of the poets though descended from dunn his mother was anne dunn he was apparently more interested in churchill and beatty than in him his one great poetical master in english was milton johnson's disparagement of whom he resented with amusing vehemence he was probably the least bookish poet who had ever had a classical education he described himself in a letter to the rev walter bagot in his later years as a poor man who has but twenty books in the world and two of them are your brother chester's the passages i have quoted give no doubt an exaggerated impression of cooper's indifference to literature his relish for such books as he enjoyed is proved in many of his letters but he was incapable of such enthusiasm for the great things in literature as keats showed for instance in his sonnet on chapman's homer though cooper disgusted with pope took the extreme step of translating homer into english verse he enjoyed even homer only with certain evangelical reservations i should not have chosen to have been the original author of such a business he declared while he was translating the nineteenth book of the iliad even though all the nine had stood at my elbow time has wonderful effects we admire that in an ancient for which we should send a modern bard to bedlam 
it is hardly to be wondered at that his translation of homer has not survived while his delightful translation of vincent bourne's jackdaw has cooper's poetry however is to be praised if for nothing else because it played so great a part in giving the world a letter-writer of genius it brought him one of the best of his correspondents his cousin lady hesketh and it gave various other people a reason for keeping his letters had it not been for his fame as a poet his letters might never have been published and we should have missed one of the most exquisite histories of small beer to be had outside the pages of jane austen as a letter-writer he does not i think stand in the same rank as horace walpole and charles lamb he has less wit and humour and he mirrors less of the world his letters however have an extraordinarily soothing charm cooper's occupations amuse one while his nature delights one his letters like lamb's have a soul of goodness not of mere virtue but of goodness and we know from his biography that in life he endured the severest test to which a good nature can be subjected his treatment of mrs unwin and the imbecile despotism of her old age was as fine in its way as lamb's treatment of his sister mrs unwin who had supported cooper through so many dark and suicidal hours afterwards became palsied and lost her mental faculties her character as sir james fraser writes in the introduction to his charming selection from the letters underwent a great change and she who for years had found all her happiness in ministering to her afflicted friend and seemed to have no thought but for his welfare now became querulous and exacting forgetful of him and mindful apparently only of herself unable to move out of her chair without help or to walk across the room unless supported by two people her speech at times almost unintelligible she deprived him of all his wanted exercises both bodily and mental as she did not choose that he should leave her for a moment or even use a pen or a book except when he read to her to these demands he responded with all the devotion of gratitude and affection he was assiduous in his attentions to her but the strain told heavily on his strength to know all this does not modify our opinion of cooper's letters except is so far as it strengthens it it helps us however to explain to ourselves why we love them we love them because as surely as the writings of shakespeare and lamb they are an expression of that sort of heroic gentleness which can endure the fires of the most devastating tragedy shakespeare finally revealed the strong sweetness of his nature in the tempest many people are inclined to overestimate the tempest as poetry simply because it gives them so precious a clue to the character of his genius and makes clear once more 
that the grand source and material of poetry is the infinite tenderness of the human heart. Cooper's letters are a tiny thing beside Shakespeare's plays, but the same light falls on them. They have an eighteenth-century restraint and freedom from emotionalism and gush, but behind their chronicle of trifles, their small fancies, their little vanities, one is aware of an intensely loving and lovable personality. Cooper's poem, To Mary, written to Mrs. Unwin in the days of her feebleness, is, to my mind, made commonplace by the odious reiteration of My Mary at the end of every verse. Leave the My Marys out, however, and see how beautiful, as well as moving, a poem it becomes. Cooper was at one time on the point of marrying Mrs. Unwin, when an attack of madness prevented him. Later on, Lady Austen apparently wished to marry him. He had an extraordinary gift for commanding the affections of those of both sexes who knew him. His friendship with the poet Haley, then a rocket fallen to earth towards the close of his life, reveals the lovableness of both men. End of Section 11 Read by The Story Girl